Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life. We all know that our finances play a big part in how we live our lives. In this podcast, the advisors from Foster and Motley share insights and information about investment and financial planning topics and how they connect to your life. While we were all celebrating the holidays, Congress was busy making new tax laws and gifting us with approximately 100 new provisions to the SECURE Act. Can't you just feel the legislative love? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, many of the changes may seem minor, but their impact could be significant. I'm Patrice Sikora with Foster and Motley's Zach Binzer and Emily Diaz. It's really good to be talking to you folks again. I'm glad the new year has started. I hope you had a good holiday season. And Emily, it's up to you. Would you start us off with an overview of Secure 1.0? Sure. Thanks, Patrice. So the original Setting Every Community Up for Retirement Act or SECURE Act uh, was from 2019. It only had about a dozen provisions, but two of them in particular were really monumental um, and affected just about all of our clients, everyone that has a retirement account or might inherit a retirement account, which is a lot of people. So the first big change from that 2019 act was that it changed the RMD age. So RMD stands for required minimum distribution. You'll hear us toss that around a lot today. Um, and it's the age at which you have to start taking money out of retirement accounts. That's a taxable event. And there can be big penalties if you fail to take a distribution that you're required to. So that act pushed the age back from age 70 and a half to age 72. The SECURE Act 2.0 is changing that further that we'll touch on later, but that was one really big change. The second one is that it eliminated what we call the stretch IRA. And so most non-spouse beneficiaries prior to this act could stretch the distribution of that inherited IRA over their lifetimes. So most people would just have to take a few percent a year out of that account. But then with SECURE Act uh, 1.0, now they have, a, we're calling it the 10-year rule, 10 years to distribute that IRA. So if you think about a, you know, a decedent who's maybe in their 80s, they've left their IRA to their children who are maybe in their 50s, in their peak earnings years, while well, they would have just had to take a small percentage out every year, now they only have 10 years, maybe during their highest tax years to now distribute a large potentially IRA. So that was a really monumental change. And it's also affecting our clients um, and how they're setting up beneficiary structures and things. But one thing that we were really hoping Secure Act 2.0 would tell us more about, and unfortunately it did not, was whether beneficiaries subject to this tenure rule also are required to take a certain amount every year. So when the rules first came out, we weren't sure do I have to take some every year? Can I take nothing for the first nine years and take it all in year 10? You know, what are my options? And last year, the IRS issued a proposal suggesting that there would be an annual small requirement in addition to taking, the, you know, distributing the whole account within 10 years. And then in the late fall, they issued a an update saying, well, there's no penalty if you were required to, you know, take a distribution, but didn't for 2021 and 22. So that makes us think, okay, maybe we're going to be required to take a small amount every year, but there hasn't been any guidance for 2023. So unfortunately, if we've got you know beneficiaries that are in the first couple of years of inheriting a retirement account subject to this 10-year rule, we really don't have good guidance yet on that. So that's kind of the long and short of Secure Act 1.0 and what we didn't find, at least so far, in 
<laughs> right. Zach Abbott Secure 2.0. Yeah. So as Emily alluded to with 1.0, there was about 12 provisions. Well, 2.0 provides several more. A hundred provisions were included in that bill, not necessarily as sweeping as the changes detailed by Emily previously, but definitely opportunities for several of our clients or citizens at large to uh, plan differently for retirement and utilize some of the benefits that 2.0 is providing. How about the RMDs? Let's start there. Yeah. So Emily alluded to changes to the RMD age in 1.0, moving from 70 and a half to age 72. 2.0 builds on that. And now there's a scale of when your RMDs require minimum distributions um, are set to begin. So if you were born in 1950 or earlier, your RMD is at 72, 70 and a half for those who turned 70 and a half prior to 2020. And if you were born 1951 to 1959, your RMD would begin at age 73. And then for those of us born 1960 or later, your RMD would begin at age 75. And this is all effective now. No change for retirees already drawing from the retirement account. So if you're already on a RMD schedule, you would expect to discontinue what you're used to. But for many of our clients who have not yet reached the RMD age, there's plenty of planning opportunities that we can use um, primarily on the tax front and being strategic with possibly voluntarily making distributions from IRAs versus waiting to be required to and doing so at more favorable tax rates. And that's part of what we do for our clients in the tax planning front. Now, again, this is not something that's, if I understand it correctly, if you turn 73 this year, you don't have to do it until next year, correct? So that's close. If you're turning 72 this year, uh, you have until next year. So if you turn 72 last year and 22, you're already under the old rules. You're taking your RMDs. If you would have been starting this year, now you got an extra year because you have until 73. So yeah, for that one uh, you know, year of clients, it makes a pretty big difference. And we were kind of a uh, scrambling with changes. We had a couple clients reach out to us in January and say, okay, I'm ready to start my distributions. You know, let's get this going. And we said, oh, wait, okay. We've just gotten back from the holidays. Let us digest <laughs> this bill. And actually, no, wait, you don't have to yet. So. All right. Fantastic. How about um, contribution limits? Do those change? So yes, changes to contribution limits on retirement accounts were part of this bill. These were in addition to the regular IRS adjustments to contribution limits, which we've become accustomed to as they adjust those limits for inflation. Um, Catch-ups for those 60 to 63 has the potential to be 150% higher than the routine catch-up. So right now, when you turn age 50, you're allowed to put a little bit more into your 401k plan, for instance, and that catch up this year is $7,500. But then from age 60 to 63, they're going to give us a little bit more in a very small window, and that could be as high as 10000 or adjusted for inflation um, might be 11250 when that takes effect in 2025. There's also other changes to Roth accounts and other retirement accounts that we'll detail here in a moment. Why don't we go ahead with those? Tell me about the Roth. Sure. So 
First, just as a little bit of background uh, with a traditional retirement account, you put in pre-tax dollars and then when you take them out in retirement, they're taxable. Roths work the opposite where you're putting after-tax dollars in and then you withdraw those funds tax-free in retirement. So overall, there are a lot more options now with Roth accounts. Um, but one kind of odd, at least odd to me, odd change that would impact our high high wage earners um, is that their catch-up contributions would be required to be Roth contributions, not traditional. So they're defining this as those making more than 145000 in wages. So that catch-up that Zach was referencing, so um, mm. that you couldn't do, so you could do traditional um contributions for your regular 401k contribution, but then if you're over 50 and you're doing this catch-up, it would be required to be Roth. Now, this isn't required until next year or effective until next year, and there's a lot of just logistics that would have to be figured out because some plans don't offer a Roth option, and so then maybe they're not allowed to make a catch-up contribution at all. It, it's just there's a lot to kind of be figured out, and I'm I'm sure employers and plan administrators will be, you know, trying to sort this out and figure out how they're going to implement it. But that's you know one thing that we've had on our radar because that is a big shift um, in terms of tax planning and such for those that are the high wage earners. Do you think that? people might have to go outside of their employer to open these Roth. If they, well, let me put it this way. If they went outside their employer to open up the Roth, if their employer didn't offer it, would that impact any kind of catch up payments? Yeah. So when you're dealing with a, you know, a plan like a 401k or a 403b, if you're at a nonprofit, um, it is an employer plan. So if you're going to contribute to it, it has to be through your payroll through that plan. Um, there are also IRAs. So, you know, I could open an individual retirement account. It's an IRA or a Roth IRA. The problem with those is that there can also be uh, compensation or rather income limits. So if your income is too high, you're limited on what you can contribute to those in a lot of cases. But now we see more doors opening up in terms of other Roth options. One of these options is that employers um, can create the election in their 401k plan where employees can choose to have the employer matching contributions be made as Roth rather than as traditional pre-tax contributions. So many plans at this point are already offering employees the option to do Roth contributions for their own employee portion, but this would open the door to the employer match potentially being Roth as well. Another option is that you can now do Roth contributions if you have a simple or a SEP IRA. Those are often for self-employed folks or small businesses. 401ks are a lot more common, but kind of all this to say that it really just depends on what kind of plan you have, but your employer, if any, or if you're self-employed, then there's different kinds of plans. And then regardless of all that, you know, you may also have IRAs that you can contribute to. But again, that just depends on your income and your own situation. So uh, it's enough to make our heads spin some days. Absolutely. Are, are employers required to have a Roth option? And I think that's part of what we're trying to unpack here and maybe why the effective date of this change specifically is 2024 to allow employers and their plan administrators to time to adjust. Because while it is more and more common for an employer to offer a traditional 401k and a Roth 401k to their employees, it's not necessarily a requirement and not 100% adoption you know, across the business world. So some plans who have people earning greater than 145,000 in wages, 
either have to tell their higher comp employees, you can't make a catch up this year, or they need to work to add or modify their plan documents to allow for the Roth contributions. I think it's worth noting as well, as we talk about Roth, um, Roth contributions typically mean that you're paying the tax today and enjoying tax deferred growth and tax-free distributions in the future. So some of these changes could mean higher taxes here in the current years and lower taxes in retirement. And you know, I'm suspicious that part of the motivation of Washington, D.C. was to accelerate some revenue into the current years and not allow as much deferral. So they're going to let us put these dollars into a retirement account and get some benefits later in life, but they're going to make sure we're paying our taxes today. And I think there are a lot of people who agree with you, Zach. Absolutely. All right. Tell me about some other changes we've got coming. One that we have seen a lot in terms of you know articles or summaries of this you know very extensive legislation is the option to use extra 529 funds to make Roth IRA contributions. So this sounds really great, and I think it could be really helpful, but I think it's going to have fairly limited applicability because there are a number of factors that you have to meet. So I mentioned it as something that we're going to be aware is out there, but the 529 has to be open for a certain number of years. um, And you're limited to how much you can use of it to contribute to a Roth IRA. But, you know, for the client in that circumstance, that could be a, a useful tool if otherwise they would have extra money left over in their 529 college account. If the student has graduated and they don't want to have to take the rest of the money out and potentially face some taxes and penalties um, on the money not used for college, that could be an option, but probably fairly limited in applicability. But doesn't the Roth have to be opened up in the beneficiary's name? Right. So it would be for the student. So right, um, right. if there's money left in the student's 529, then they could use the 529 funds to make their own Roth IRA contributions. Okay. How about the changes for the surviving spouse IRA options? Yeah. So this is an interesting nuance. Um, we talked about the RMD ages and those being attached to the year you were born. Um, unique for spouses is the opportunity that if your spouse passes away, you can inherit your deceased spouse's IRA in a certain way that maybe allows you longer time to, before you begin your RMDs. And so for an example is if you are a spouse and you were three years older than your, say your husband when he passed away. So let's say you were 65 and he was 62 and you inherit his employer plan in the form of an IRA. If we used your birthday you would have to start that RMD on your respective age 75 per the new rules. But the loophole here is that you can make an election to delay your RMD until your deceased spouse would have been required to take their RMD. So in theory, 10 years from now, when you turn 75, you could delay another three years until your deceased spouse would be turning 75. And thus you may, in my example, be 78 starting RMDs when your deceased spouse would have turned 75. Wow. That's a big difference. Yeah. I mean, it gives another three years of flexibility to potentially make elective distributions at lower tax rates before um, required distributions kick in. And therefore those could be at higher tax rates. Okay. Um, What about this expansion of the pre-59 and a half exemptions? What's that about? 
Mm -hmm. So typically, uh, if you're taking funds out of a retirement account before age 59 and a half, the it's subject to an early withdrawal penalty. Um, so there are certain exceptions to that. The SECURE Act 2.0 greatly increased the number of those exceptions. We've seen pages and pages uh, trying to summarize all of the exceptions. So we're not going to go into that in a whole lot of depth. Some of them are um, situation specific or certain uh, employees of certain industries. But by and large, this doesn't affect a whole lot of our clients because we're normally trying to be proactive with them to make sure that we've got appropriate savings reserves so that you know when life happens, they're not needing to dig into retirement accounts that they've got other things set aside. There's also another account uh, being rolled out that's an emergency savings account that will be linked to an employer 401k. Um, this isn't effective yet. Um, and again, we're hoping that most of our clients will already have good you know, savings reserves set aside elsewhere. But just a heads up that I'm sure a lot of employees are going to start seeing this as an option that they can contribute to like their 401k, but it'll be a, you know, an emergency savings option with different rules about how they can get funds out. All right. Now, the penalty for taking for not taking your RMD, I found this hugely different. It currently is if you don't take your RMD on time, you can get slapped with 50% as a penalty. But that's yeah. gone down significantly. So yes, the penalty for not taking your RMD was 50%. And with this bill, now the range is from 10 to 25%. And that range is dictated by how quickly, basically, you fess up to the IRS and take <laughs> action to uh, correct the mistake voluntarily. You know, if they have to track you down and impose the correction on you, I'm guessing you're going to you're going to face the 25%. But if you acknowledge your mistake and work rapidly to clean it up, you get a much smaller penalty at 10%. I think the phrasing is in a timely fashion. Correct. But but nobody has defined timely fashion. I think there's parameters around it. I'd have to double check, <laughs> but uh, I think it's within two years. Okay. All right. That's fair enough. All right. As we wrap this up, what else do you guys want to talk about here? Like some action steps for, for uh, clients. I think the big takeaway is just that financial planning and tax planning are important. Obviously, we're going to say that, right? We're uh, financial advisors, financial planners, tax people, um, but with a lot of these rules, it's a lot to keep up with. And um, we were watching a, a webinar summary of all of these changes and they ended it with, well, if you're head spinning, the good news is the penalties have gone down, you know, if, if you have a client that gets it wrong. And obviously we're trying to stay abreast of all of this because there's just there's so much that can impact our clients and we certainly don't any, want anyone to be hit with penalties. But I think more importantly, just making sure that we're being proactive. So now if we've got clients with um, you know, the RMD age being delayed and with fewer years for their beneficiaries to distribute their inherited retirement accounts, if and when that time comes, you know, that's more dollars in fewer years. That could mean a much bigger tax bill. So I think the more that we're, you know, being proactive with our clients, trying to manage that. Maybe we can start taking some out early, even if they don't need to. Um, now we know that there's different contribution options for those that are still working. So just uh, there's more flexibility now. Also, in some cases, a few more rules and a few more hoops to jump through. And I'm sure it'll take some time for us to figure out exactly what implementation and what forms to fill out and all of those good things for some of these new rules for missions and such. But, you know, takeaway is there's a lot more flexibility, but that also means there's a lot more work for us to do and helping clients to take advantage of those possible uh, opportunities. 
Zach, any final thoughts? Yeah, I think just overarching where Secure Point 1.0 seemed intended to to simplify saving for retirement and kind of eliminate loopholes and things and just level the playing field for all. I feel like 2.0 maybe went the other way with the pendulum and has reintroduced complexities and nuance. And therefore, there's more opportunity, as Emily alluded to, for us to, to provide value to our clients to make sure that they are taking advantage of the law in their best interest. And who has the contact information on how to reach you? Yeah, you can reach us at our website, which is www.fosterandmotley.com. And if you found this information useful, and if you have more questions, please subscribe or follow this podcast. And don't forget to share with others. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster and Motley. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Keep in mind that rules and regulations are subject to change. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.